0: Today on The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to The Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and tell all of your friends. Coming up on today's show, an update on the tragic shooting in New Zealand and how it has changed the way we view social media. Also, the Jody Wilson-Raybould story will not go away. Now extended to Budget Day on Tuesday. Will we hear from her then? It's all coming up on today's show. Just uh, a terrible day and, and what has happened in New Zealand and over the course of uh, uh, the last little while on this Friday, of course, uh, time change and such. They are much ahead of us. But uh, fascinating, uh, horror, horrific uh, just to see what is happening and, and how people have responded and uh, and, and come to uh, the aid of people in New Zealand. 49 people dead, 20 seriously injured in New Zealand after attack on two mosques. Uh, what we know so far, and I'll, I'll try to, to get you updated on this, uh, two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, 49 people dead, others seriously hurt. Uh, a man in his late 20s charged with murder in connection with the incidents. Uh, three people were arrested. One of them born in Australia after an active shooter situation led to significant fatalities at the mosques during Friday prayers uh, police said a fourth person was arrested friday but that was not related to uh, these events they're still trying to determine how to determine how the other two were taken into custody and how they are linked to the shooting uh, 49 killed 41 victims were at al-nuur mosque on dean's avenue seven were at a mosque on linwood avenue another died in uh, Christchurch Hospital. Uh, the police said at a news conference uh, 48 people being treated in hospital for their injuries. Uh, they said they're not actively looking for any identified persons at this point, uh, but uh, they can't assume that there would be no one else involved. Uh, in in this as well uh, they said they also were not aware of these people uh, no agency in New Zealand or in Australia had any information on these people uh, before the incident uh, happened he also shed lights of uh, improved ex- uh, on improvised explosive devices uh, IEDs police initially suggested they had been attached to two vehicles they clarified that that was on a single vehicle the prime minister announced that the national security level uh, had been raised from low to high uh, and also said none of the people in custody were on security watch lists uh, as well Uh, they're not ruling out more uh, arrests at this time uh, and and went on to say that uh, this is certainly a a very dark time in their history Uh, hate and violence has stolen their peace and innocence uh, says the Prime Minister They're looking uh, to uh, other, advising other mosques across the country to uh, shut their doors until uh, further notice. They are saying this is a terror, a terrorist attack, uh, as well. any people that have shared footage of this, and we'll talk about this a little later on in how some of this has uh, been shared on Facebook. We'll get into that side of the story after the news at 11, at 1230, rather, uh, and, and Facebook responding to that as well. All right, so that's basically uh, what we have in a nutshell. We're going to play you some clips uh, at this point. Uh, here is a witness to uh, what happened and uh, what this person saw going down. It was like 10 to 15 minutes of continuous shooting. And uh, a spokesperson from the Defence Ministry.
1: Uh, we're a relatively small population, and while we are uh, ethnically quite diverse, uh, we, we live very peaceable lives. And this has, uh, as many have said, kind of shattered our innocence in a way.
0: And here's what the Prime Minister had to say today. You may have chosen us,
2: but we utterly reject and condemn you.
0: All right. Uh, certainly something that has uh, shocked the world. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President and CEO, of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, your thoughts on, on what has transpired here and, and, and just the the amount of people that uh, lost their lives here. This must have been incredibly well orchestrated.
3: Oh, it was. We, we know for a fact, uh, because the gunman is alive, and we know that he left a detailed manifesto online in which he talked about the fact that he had planned this a number of years in advance, and in fact had chosen Christchurch at least three months ago, so this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. He'd been thinking about this for quite some time. I think what struck me, Scott, uh, first thing this morning when I was made aware of this, is, is the scale. Uh, you know, mm. you mentioned 49 dead, at least 20 wounded. Uh, this is horrific in nature, in terms of the, of the amount of lives that were lost due to this one one gun and with possible accomplices involved as well. It's a it's almost it's hard to fathom, it's hard to comprehend. Um, you know, we talk about you and I talk about terrorism an awful lot, but you know, you're still I think it kinda of sets you back when you just try to think about the enormity of the of the loss today. It's it's really hard to it's hard to process.
0: Expand a little bit more on the manifesto and and why how someone lays these plans out like this.
3: Well, i got to be careful because I haven't read the entire – I've read snippets that I've that I made available on various media sources around mm-hmm. the world. And, and what, it, what struck me with the manifesto, the language was very similar to the manifesto that had been written by a man called Anders Breivik, who was a Norwegian who t- killed 75 people back in 2011. Mm-hmm. Now, his manifesto was, was 1,500 pages long. This one's only 75 pages long or so, so substantially shorter. But what I did read online was the content was very similar talked a lot about how immigrants are taking over, how these people don't belong here, how they're not part of us, how we have to fight back to stop this invasion of people from abroad. So these are, these are tropes, these are themes you hear constantly with the far right, with neo-Nazi groups. So he certainly fits into a pattern in that sense. Um, but I, I, I need more time to read the, the, sort of the entirety of the manifesto, but that's the initial impression that I got when I looked at it this morning.
0: Considering what we have here with this manifesto and how well this was obviously coordinated, are you surprised he wasn't on police or any uh, organization's radar?
4: Mm,
3: not necessarily. So, you know, he was, he's an Australian, so he would be under the remit of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, which is the Australian version of CSIS or the Australian Federal Police. So it depends on how much those two agencies and other Australian services were looking at the far right. We've certainly been criticized here in Canada for the fact that teachers in the RCMP are not looking at the far right enough, according to some people's minds. I, I, I would push back on that. Um, there's clearly uh, an element of the far right in all of our countries, but you know, to what extent does this pose an actual danger? Well, we found to say it does. But the problem, Scott, is that there's lots and lots, there's tons of people online who spout this garbage, this racist, intolerant yeah. garbage? And the vast majority are—I don't know if I can use this word on the radio—they're a bunch of wankers. Yeah, okay? yeah. They don't do anything; yeah. they just talk. Yeah. So it, the, the 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 challenge is how do you how do you distinguish the the talkers from the walkers? and, and no one has a solution to that, unfortunately.
0: Uh, how, does, how does New Zealand and Australia and the world deal with this moving forward? Because as you said, um, you, you know, many aren't usually examining uh, or, or putting their as, as much attention to homegrown or domestic terrorism. Uh, obviously, is this something we need to be looking at?
3: Well, it is. There's no question that the, you know, this, is, this is a phenomenon that we've seen, we saw it here in Canada with Alexandre Bissonnette in January 2017. Yeah. We've seen it, we've seen it here. The problem, Scott, is that, you know, if you work the CISAN, you work with the RCMP, you've got a finite box of resources. You've got so many investigators, so many surveillance teams, so many whatever, and you allot those depending on the nature of the threat. We still face a significant Islamist extremist threat, and I would argue that that is more important than the far right. doesn't mean that, that you don't look at the far right. You have to, but, you know, it's, it's like you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Right. So if you take people away from looking at jihadis... Look at the far right, you might have more successful jihadi attacks. And you know there was an attack or a plot in Kingston, which is four a month ago or a mm-hmm. month and a half ago. So, you know, it's like you're being asked to look at all things simultaneously, and you should, but there's only so much you can do with the resources that you have. So I'm not, I don't want to lay blame. It's no one's fault no. Um, that, that this guy wasn't looked at. I mean, it is what it is. It's just, you know, you would have hoped that at some point he'd done something where says, somebody must have noticed something was what he was posting online. Hmm. So it's incumbent on us as citizens to say, yeah, that's not right. Or, no, not only is it not right, this is dangerous, and I want to alert somebody in this, whether it's law enforcement or whatever. Again, I'm not try- I don't want to speculate too much here into all the details, but it, it, it's just hard. We can't be everywhere in all things to all people. We do the best we can with the resources that we have.
0: What about weaponry used and, and how this was planned, uh, y- you know, the template for this?
3: Yeah, this is really interesting to me because both Australia and New Zealand have very, very strict gun laws.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and so the question I would have going forward is where did he get the weapons from? Did he bring the weapons with him to, uh, to New Zealand from Australia? If that's the case, how did he get them in the country? Um, did he buy them locally? Did he, did he access them locally? I don't know. So I think the, the, the law enforcement will be looking at, you know, what did he have? Why did he have it? How did he get it? And how did it make his way into the country to shed light on, is there a bigger problem here with weapons in the Atlantic, which is normally a very peaceful, you know, kind of country, kind of like Canada. That's why it's I think such a shock to most of us.
0: Uh, One person who uh, already been charged and obviously the ringleader. What do we know about the others? Not a lot so
3: far from what I've read. I have to be. I have to caution you. I've been on the road all morning, so I'm not mm. chance to keep up with the latest news. But there appear to have been others involved. Uh, the extent of their involvement, I think, is still to be determined. So we might. We may have, in fact, a lone actor. Uh, these people might be, you know, just swept up, and they have nothing to do with it. Or we have someone who was solely responsible for the act, but had help in planning it, whether it's logistics, casing, whatever. And I think those are the kinds of details that we'll, we'll hopefully find out further as the New Zealand police investigation goes forward.
0: As you take a step back from all of this, what do you learn? What's, what do you take from something like this?
3: Oh, God. Uh, where do we start? Um, there are people in this world who are angry. They are frustrated. They hold grievances. Like, every, all of us have grievances. I'm sure, Scott, you get angry sometimes. I get angry sometimes, too. There's a small subset of people, and thankfully it's a very small subset, who build on that anger, build on that, that anger becomes hatred, and that hatred becomes, I need to do something. And, you know, if you look at what we know from the man's Manifesto, he did talk about invasions. He did talk about you know Australian way of life being taken over. He talked about Australia is going, going to be European lands, and we shouldn't have most of in our European lands. So for some people... They just go to that nth degree, and they, they plan, and they carry out acts of violence. Again, I, I think this is, this is thankfully a rarity. And, now, you know, yes, it, it's been happening. It's been, it has been happening around the world. But it doesn't happen everywhere around the world every day, which should, which should give us some solace, the fact that most people don't do this. Most people don't act on this, even if they are angry. Even if there are these poisonous channels online and these chat rooms and these sharing of information in social media – The vast majority of people don't get to that point. So, I mean, if they did, we'd be in real trouble. The fact is, they don't. So, I'm not not trying to dismiss this attack. I'm not trying to minimize this attack. But I think we have to step back and say, what does this really mean? This really means that we have people on this planet who think it's okay to, to take innocent life because they're angry. And that's a whole bigger question as to what do you do about that in terms of education, in terms of mental health, in terms of counseling. We could talk about this for for hours, Scott, on yeah. on, on the things going forward. But um, it's part of the human condition, and uh, it is what it is.
0: Does it say something of the world we live in, in the sense uh, we seem to be living in a world of extremes now? There's a lot of divisiveness. Uh, are, are you concerned that something like this sparks other activity in others who are on the edge?
3: There's always the possibility of a copycat, somebody who's inspired. This guy is already, I'm sure, being praised on these sites as a hero in the same way that Alexandre Bissonnette was a hero. By yeah. the way, the Australian guy did mention Bissonnette in his manifesto. Mm. Anders Breivik is a hero to many people for what he did in Norway in 2011. So there will people who will be inspired by it. You know, there's a lot of talk about the, the, the increase in populism, the increase in uh, polarized societies. Yeah. I think if you were to step back and take a look at what happened in 100 years ago, we're equally polarized but in a different way. Yeah. The difference now is that we have social media. It acts as an echo chamber. Yeah. The difference now is we have, you know, if you, if you were polarized in 1867, you had a musket. If you're polarized and angry <laughs> in, in, in 2019, you've got an automatic AK-47 that shoots yeah. a gazillion rounds every minute. Yeah. That's what makes it a little more dangerous, I think. Yeah. But, you know, people have always been divisive. We've been divisive since you know, Garden of Eden, if you want to go back that far. Um, let's not make too much out of it, but it is more problematic when you have the, 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 the social media aspect of it and the fact that you can get some pretty dangerous weapons that can kill a lot of people in a very small small period of time.
0: So what questions are leaders in Australia and New Zealand or even around the world as they look at this? What are they? What, what questions are world leaders asking right now?
4: Well, I think
3: they're going to look at, you know, how their security intelligence and law enforcement agencies are deploying their resources. Um, can they, in fact, uh, juggle uh, who looks at what and for what reason? I, I really understand why the New Zealanders raised the threat level, but I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to sound dismissive again, but this is a knee-jerk reaction. Normally, the only reason you raise a threat level is if you have intelligence or information to suggest that other attacks are coming. This is reactionary, and I understand why they did it. People want to feel safe. They want to feel the government cares and is paying attention. Yeah. Um, I'd be surprised if there are more attacks in the immediate couple of days in New Zealand, unless there's a, a larger group or cell that's, that's active, and I, and I had nothing to suggest that. But, you know, we're asking ourselves questions about, about gun access. Right? This is a very, very emotional topic for a lot of people, including here in Canada. Yeah. And, and I think we have to start asking ourselves these questions. Does anybody really need access to these weapons? In my mind, the answer is no. There are many people I'm sure who would disagree with you, maybe, with me, maybe even on your program, but I think we have to start looking at, um, how can we, to the best of our ability, you can never eliminate it t- completely, how can you make it as hard as possible to prevent angry people who want to take their anger and act violently have access to weapons that can do that. And, and how you do that, I don't have any answers to it. I don't know if you do, but it's the kinds of questions they're asking themselves right now.
0: Phil Gursky has been with us, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML talking about, of course, the uh, horrific shooting uh, shootings that have happened at uh, two different mosques in New Zealand. Uh, 49 people dead, uh, at least 20 seriously injured uh, in all of this. Uh, one person in custody uh, seems to be a well-planned terrorist attack uh, left a manifesto. Uh, two, three other people uh, arrested. We don't know much about them at this point uh, as this case uh, is, is still very fluid at this Time. Um, This case, in fact, was so fluid that it was literally captured live on social media. Uh, I'm reading you. Uh, an excerpt here from Global News uh, website. Social media platforms Facebook and Twitter said today they would take down content involving uh, the two New Zealand mosque uh, shootings uh, that killed 49 people. Uh, The suspected gunman broadcast live footage on Facebook of the attack on one of uh, the mosques of the city of Christchurch, mirroring the carnage played out in video games after publishing a manifesto in which he denounced immigrants. Uh, The video footage posted on line live as the attack unfolded appeared to show him driving into one up to one mosque entering it and shooting randomly at the people inside. Worshippers, possibly dead or wounded, lay huddled on the floor, the video showed. Uh, Reuters was unable to confirm the, uh, the authenticity of the footage, uh, uh, police uh, alerted, uh, this is uh, what Facebook tweeted, uh, oddly enough. Uh, police alerted, uh, alerted us to a video on Facebook shortly after the live stream commenced. We quickly removed both the shooter's Facebook and Instagram accounts uh, from the video. Uh, Also, they're removing any praise or support for the crime and the shooter or shooters as uh, they become aware of it. Uh, Twitter said it has a rigorous process, uh, processes and a dedicated team in place for managing uh, emergency situations such as this. Um, uh, YouTube said uh, people are working diligently to remove or diligently to to remove any of this footage. And uh, as it comes available, they are doing that. This uh, live streaming obviously has become a center component of social media companies' uh, growth in recent years, but also has been increasingly exploited by some users uh, who, who live stream violent or uh, criminal offenses. And there's, there's been a couple of situations of that uh, in the past. Uh, very bizarre that something so tragic is recorded this way. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
1: Great being your soft thing.
0: Wow how do you uh, how do you balance this? Um, is is there any way social media can keep a handle on this sort of thing?
1: You know I wish it could. And then it, it, what's so sad about this is that social media was originally supposed to be like the internet before it, a force for good. It was supposed to be a place where we could all connect, uh, we could get to know each other, we could share things, and you know improve the state of humanity. That was the wonderfully rose-colored glasses, idealistic sort of starting point of it all. Uh, but obviously, like most technologies, it's been corrupted along the way, and, and that's that brings us to today. It's been used as a platform to not only spread hate, and you know, in this case, share the live stream, horrifying footage uh, of a of a of a shooting as it happens. Uh, but even more critically, and, and quite frankly, more frighteningly, uh, that it it, it it allows groups, it allows hate fueled groups uh, to share their, their, uh, their messaging in advance of events like this. It allows them to plan events like this. Uh, it allows them to connect, overcome geography, uh, basically use uh, a platform that was created for good to advance their malevolent and evil deeds. And that's what scares me here is not so much that a video was shown because you know, ultimately it, it happens, what scares me is what's happening now is that there are groups who are using today's event uh, as a precursor to maybe something that'll have that they'll perpetrate tomorrow or later on in time.
0: I uh, just got off the phone with a threat and risk uh, 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 consultant, and he said, "You know, this has always existed in time. It's just now social media has made it more prevalent. Everyone has a voice. Everyone has eyes, ears, a mouth. Uh, all of that. Um, is this another situation of just too many users, and 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 no way to possibly possibly police the sheer volume of people who are, are using this technology?" I think it is, Scott. I mean, if you think about the numbers, you know, Facebook's got well over
1: two and a quarter billion people using it every month. About 1.4 billion use it every single day. And if you think about how much video they're uploading at any given moment, hundreds of hours every single minute. And so it's almost like trying to keep the ocean p- properly filtered. Can you stand on, on a beach somewhere and say, I'm going to filter the ocean in real time and make sure that nothing bad hits anyone? There's mm-hmm. no way to ensure that in nature, and there's no way to ensure that on Facebook. The, the landscape is just too big. There are too many people sharing too much at the same time, and there just aren't enough resources, both human and technological, to police it all. Forget real time at all. And that's part of the problem Uh, you know, as we saw today in New Zealand, this wasn't just an uploaded video that, you know, after a few hours could have been maybe uh, caught by an algorithm or seen by a human moderator. This was something that was shared live stream in real time. And so the technology to do that on the scale that we're talking about simply doesn't exist. Facebook would, would like us to believe it exists, but we've seen time and again in shootings in the U.S., Denmark, Thailand. It just doesn't work that way. And unfortunately, stuff like this will continue to leak through. Uh,
0: Specifically with a live stream, I mean, there is nothing we can do. Is there to stop this? You can't. You you know, if you're giving people the technology, the ability to do that, it's going to happen. Is it not?
1: It will. And you're certainly considering the technological state of the art right now. We just don't have the technology to do that in the ideal world. Artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, would be applied on what we like to call a mass scale so that it literally scans a live stream as it's being shared online. And as soon as it detects something that crosses the line, uh, it immediately flags it for removal and it stops the live stream in progress. Uh, that's the ideal. The truth of the matter is artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, and the hardware that would drive it simply aren't capable of doing that in real time Uh, across the billions of people who use Facebook every single day. Uh, I wish that were the case, but we're not there yet. And we may not be there yet for years to come, uh, which of course means that what we saw today in New Zealand play out across social media is probably going to play out across social media again and again and again before we figure it out.
0: You know, and think how far we've come in a short period of time, Carmi. Like, I've been in this business for 30 years. Uh, I remember that people who were in the news gathering business, uh, uh, camera people, uh, uh, you know, that sort of thing, where they would just in their day-to-day lives capture footage of, of, of things that they would never ever show or think of showing on a newscast. And, <laughs> and and I remember that they would actually have clips of these that went around within the industry of all of these horrific things that had happened on video, but nobody ever, ever saw. Now, everyone gets to see that stuff.
1: That's right, because now it's no longer, thanks to social media, thanks to to smartphones, thanks to ubiquitous high speed wireless connectivity. Everybody is a, sh- is a, is a video shooter. Everyone can upload in real time, you know, live stream wherever they are, whatever they're doing. And so now everyone's become basically a news gatherer and a news sharer. So it's no longer trained individuals within the news industry who decide what we can and cannot see. Now you, anyone can do that. And that, yeah you know, that's both a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, we see things we wouldn't have otherwise seen, and if used as a force for good, obviously we all benefit. But in cases like this, clearly, it's well beyond our control, and unfortunately, the consequences is absolutely impossible. To rein in, uh, you know, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg didn't understand or appreciate it in 2004 yeah. when he was in his Harvard dorm room. <laughs> what he was unleashing on the world, but this is where we are today.
0: And you know, uh, uh, again, we th- this does not happen very often, considering how many live streams there are a day. And perhaps some may think that society is going to hell in a handbasket, and and if you know it occurs all the time, I guess it is. But that being said, it it also gives people the ability to see these dark corners of the world uh, even though they are in a minority. And we do have to keep that in perspective, too. Even though we're seeing this stuff, it doesn't mean it's happening more. Does that make sense? You're absolutely
1: right. Just The, the tools for communicating that have become so incredibly powerful. and We know everything now. Them. That's yeah. right. And we know it now. We know it in real time. And yeah. so, you're right. We can get a really skewed view of the world. but And, and unfortunately, the way algorithms work because everyone is interested in the New Zealand story today, that becomes top of mind and it pushes everything out. It's the software that is also shaping our worldview, but we can tweak that software by changing what we look for when we're online. And so, for example, the video right now, you have a choice right now. All of our listeners have a choice. They can go online, and if they want, with a couple of quick search terms, they can watch that video. I don't recommend they do because it's incredibly disturbing. If they do, however, what they're doing is they're telling the algorithms I want to see more like this, therefore they're going to see more bad news. So don't give in to the algorithms. Say no to it up front. Start modifying your behavior so that you can see more positive content online going forward.
0: So what are the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world thinking about today? What are they talking about?
1: Well, you know, their PR arms are certainly saying, you know, we're doing everything that we can to rein in this kind of of behavior, to remove this kind of content from our uh, platform. They're doubling down on their commitment to Keeping their platforms safe for you know well-meaning people like you and me and all of our listeners. Um, but the flip side of that is is that the more they clamp down on this content, uh, the the worse it is for their business. Their business is based on us sharing more, right. doing more, interacting more. And even if sometimes it crosses the line as far as advertisers are concerned, the bigger the audience, the better. Even if sometimes the content is questionable, so it runs counter. To their profit seeking motive as a publicly traded company. And so there are two sides to it. There's the PR side, but then there's the business side. And if you're an investor, you don't want them behaving in a way that affects your share price or profitability. Long term, this isn't going to happen. They speak out of both sides of their mouth for, for very good reason.
0: Uh, do we put too much blame on social media companies? Is, you know, uh, are, are we putting too much pressure on them to take care of us? What is our responsibility here?
1: That's a really good point. You know, like at the end of the day, when, when it's just you and your smartphone or you and your laptop, and you're flipping through your timeline and you're searching for stuff online, and you're choosing what to interact with and not to interact with, you're the final arbiter. You're the final person deciding whether you want to consume this content or not. Uh, so don't blame Facebook. Uh, blame yourself for not being a really uh, informed or good consumer of content. Uh, so it's up to us to decide to, to be our own best curators uh, of online content uh, and make sure that the the activities that we engage in online are above board, that they're contributing to the good, not the not good. Um, and if we do that, we will then train the Facebooks, the YouTubes, the Twitters, the Googles of the world to reshape our online experience and hopefully push it in a more positive direction. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you and me, not the social media companies. uh, And it's our behavior that's going to change things for the better.
0: So what about this content? And do we know how long the footage was that he actually, before they shut it down, how long did he keep doing this? Do we know? Well, what
1: we've seen, and Facebook isn't sharing this information, but from what I've seen, uh, it was about a 17 minute live stream, which suggests, and Facebook isn't saying when it took it down or how long it was up Uh, before they took it down. I think those numbers would be quite embarrassing to the company, but the fact that it was 17 minutes long means that uh, it it took 17 minutes for someone to recognize it and call the New Zealand police, who then called Facebook and had it taken down. That is clearly a a window that's much too wide, and obviously Facebook needs to up its game.
0: Wow. So what happens to this video? I mean, if it was up for 17 minutes, obviously it's floating around there now. What happens to it now? It will live in perpetuity
1: online. And yeah. as much as we like to think that, oh, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube took it down, we're good. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. Once yeah. it's up there and it goes viral, uh, you know, you have millions of people who are looking for it. Uh, on, on the other side, millions of people who are grabbing it and then sharing it on different platforms. It's probably on the, all over the dark web now as well. Um, you know, it's a sad fact of modern life, but this is going to live forever. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that we're dealing with New Zealand today, but guess what? Next time this happens, the same kind of sort of after effect is going to play out on social media and on broader web platforms as well and it will never disappear much as we wish it would.
0: That was my next point here, Carmi. You know, I mean, unfortunately, this isn't the first time that there's been an attack like this. We have seen many of these in various parts of the world and such, but certainly nothing like this, where not only is it recorded, but it's actually uh, uh, streamed live, the actual incident happening. Do you see this changing, this sort of thing, that now every person who's thinking of doing this now uh, want, wants to to strap a camera to them? I think what frightens me uh
1: the most about this particular event in uh, New Zealand is that there's an apparent connection to the Quebec City mosque shooting the name Bissonette was, yeah. was on one of the one of the shooters it was very clearly visible in some of the footage and so what frightens me now is that Seeds are now being planted because of the content that's being shared online in the minds of those who would do something like this elsewhere in future. Um, And unfortunately, social media is part of that. We've allowed it to become part of that, and there really is no way to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, This is going to inspire another generation of of terrorists, of criminals, uh, hate-driven, racism-driven criminals. Uh, and sadly, the next event is probably going to be connected back to this one. I wish it were different, um, but history is a, is, a, is a pretty good teacher and we're already seeing it play out now.
0: So what happened, you know, situations, you, you talked about the relation to uh, what had happened in, in, in Quebec and such. Um, that being said, is it not possible for social media to to red flag that stuff? And, and you know, and again, with the, th- the, th- the uh, threat and risk uh, consultant we just have on, there's so many of these out there that never, ever, ever, ever materialize to something like this. It's just you know, uh, disturb people who are making their feelings known. So, again, is it possible to to wade through all of this crap and and, and figure out who this person is, who that person is?
1: I think it's definitely possible, Scott, for us to get better at it. In other words, like everything tech-related, the technology gets better over time. So we get better software, we get better uh, networks and hardware that allow it to churn through more content faster. Um, so for example, you can post something, let's say I decided to post, uh, post a violent video and as soon as I started to post it a red flag would pop up on my screen saying that violates our terms of service, you're not allowed to upload it or if I tried to live stream something that was particularly graphic, uh, I would be stopped dead in my tracks and it wouldn't be shared beyond that and so I think the technology is getting better, it's better today than it was during the time of the Quebec mass shooting um, and it will get better before the next one I'm sure. But it's like one of those, it's like a cat and mouse game, Scott. You know, the, the technology gets better, and then the criminals figure out a way around it. So, for example, they might tweak some settings on their video. They might slow it down. They right. might change some of the meta information to fool the algorithm. And it's like, it's cops and robbers, back and forth. that goes, tech gets better, they get smarter, tech gets better, they get smarter. And so that's, that's a never-ending process. It kind of it describes criminal behavior back to the beginning of time. Now it's on a technological playground, and unfortunately, that's probably not going to change. But we can certainly do better to close the window. So instead of it being 17 minutes before the flag goes up, maybe it's 17 seconds. Next yeah. time. Maybe mm-hmm. it's 1.7 seconds. Eventually, we'll get to the point where we're not t- having this conversation because far fewer leakers are getting through.
0: But, Carmen, do you think this will, will change if all of a sudden, as we've suggested, anybody who's doing such a horrific act will now stream it live? I mean, what if we start getting this over and over and over again?
1: I'm of two minds on this one, Scott. On the one hand, you know, the optimist in me wants to believe that we will figure this out, that Facebook and, and Twitter and and, uh, and uh, YouTube and everyone else will put their heads together and the industry will come up with better solutions and, and they'll pool their resources and fix this once and for all. Um, but the pessimist in me, you know, I think we've seen this historical drumbeat uh, of ever-worsening scenarios where uh, mass shooters have figured out that social media is an amazing way to reach a large audience in a viral way. And they're becoming ever more sophisticated in how they integrate that into their crimes. And so I, I unfortunately, I think, you know, we're, we're building on history, they're learning from past experience. Um, and unfortunately, they're getting better at it. Uh, it's up to us to figure out ways to push back. But let's not kid ourselves. They're way beyond sort of You know, simply, you know, writing a manifesto on paper and leaving it at the scene of the crime. Mm. In many cases, they are incredibly sophisticated at using these tools to find the widest possible audience. And virality working the way it does, we're playing right into their hands.
0: Carmi Levy has been with us, Tech Analyst. Carmi, as always, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating angle to this uh, horrific story. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, Much appreciated. Really appreciate being here, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's interesting. I got a note uh, earlier on today uh, from Larry. Please stay on the Jody Wilson-Raybould fiasco. The subject cannot be dropped and ignored. The liberals have control of the media. (laughs) Thank you, Larry. Uh, So anyway, uh, yeah, we are just because it's a news story. I mean, if nothing happens and you probably won't hear anything about it. On Monday well you might because they might set it up for Tuesday but other than that and that's the odd thing about all of this is that it just seems there's no plan of attack here to solve this problem and and it just can, continues to be a thorn in the side of the Liberals and you wonder why they don't just do something to, 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 to put it all to an end instead of just delaying it and you know bringing things forth uh, you, you know like trying to hide it on a budget day and such just get it over with move on you would think, uh, however, that's not happening. Jody Wilson-Raybould at an event affirmed her commitment to the Liberal Party, regardless of how hard the past few weeks have been. Uh, and, and she's committed to being a Liberal. And and again, you have to ask yourself, what's in this for her? What is she trying to accomplish? Uh, she's committed to being a Liberal. And yet the story that she's embroiled in is, is, is obviously hurting the, the, the Liberal Party. So, what does she want to see come out of this? I guess is is another question many want to know the answer to, uh, and and. And again, why don't we just get to that point instead of dragging out this self-inflicted wound? Uh, And are Canadians more interested in the budget than they would be in a Jody Wilson-Raybould testimony, a second testimony, especially after Gerald Butts has uh, had his say and the Clerk of the Privy Council got to speak twice? Let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So, you know, here we have uh uh Jodie Wilson raybould out in her uh constituency uh the other day and, and talking about how she's committed to being a liberal. How does she balance all this, Christo? What's what's her end game in in, in this and and why can't uh the Liberal Party and Jodie Wilson raybould get this behind them?
2: Well, you know, I think I think in some ways I, it's hard to say exactly what her end game is, but I think, you know, I think her argument is Um, that, look, I have significant problems with this particular issue and how it was handled, and I don't have faith in the cabinet as it's currently constructed to deal with it, but perhaps she says on the broad ideology and philosophy and meaning of this party, I support it. And you can see that with other parties. It's not inconceivable for someone to say, for instance, um, that, look, I don't support uh, Andrew Shearer's policy on this and I can't sit in cabinet but i believe in the beliefs of the conservative party and all of its supporters and therefore i'm going to remain a conservative but i'm going mm-hmm. to be uh, i can't in good conscience sit in cabinet and maybe her end game is to outlast trudeau maybe her end game is and and this is speculation on my end but some other people have mentioned this maybe her her goal here is to is to keep the power because if, if Trudeau wants to get rid of her, there's two ways to do it. He can have her quit, or he can boot her from caucus. Right. And I think that the optics are a lot better on her end if she's kicked out. So as long as she is in caucus, Trudeau has the ball in his court, and he has to take that shot if he chooses. Um, and, and it looks like it would be a very difficult decision either way for him. If he keeps her on, you, you keep this, this very critical voice in your caucus. Um, who, you know you who has already kind of uh, gone gone to uh, attack you on on a very important issue? but if you boot her, um, it looks like you're you you're kind of justifying some of what she said. you're no, you're acknowledging that this is very serious. you're acknowledging that she has has actually you know put a chink in your armor. and so it's a very tricky position. And I think for on the one hand, it's also important to note that she has, at least it, it appears to be, the, the, the loyalty of the local liberals in her riding. And, and on a excuse me, in our system, that's who gets you elected is the people in that community. Yeah. So she might feel that, look, I'm going to stay loyal to my riding association and the voters will put me back in. And then we'll see what happens after that.
0: Are you surprised we haven't heard a solution from her or what she wants out of this? And many will say, well, she just wants the truth to come out. And, and, and I get that. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's an internal squabble within the uh, uh, Liberal Party that involves something very public, and that being the SNC-Lavalin uh, affair. But you would think that the Prime Minister's office and Jody Wilson-Raybould would be working towards something. Do you get the feeling that they are or they just keep doing their own thing?
2: I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I'm not privy to you know, any discussions that may or may not be happening between Wilson-Raybould and the cabinet or between any of their proxies. I have no I have no clue about that. Uh, so I wouldn't want to speculate. But it seems to me like one of the challenges here is that we're not even sure what the government's next step is. I mean, the new AG slash justice
4: minister mm-hmm. said they
2: might um, go back and, and, and they're not exactly sure what's going to happen with SNC. So, maybe Wilson Weybold's of the position, it's like, I don't know ultimately what my move is here because I don't know what the government will ultimately do in regards to snc Lavalin. There's a, you know, the, the, the new guy in charge of that portfolio has indicated that, you know, no decision is final and that he reserves the right to kind of make a, a, a move at a later point. And if that move is more in direct opposition to Wilson Weybold's position, then that could, you know, widen the chasm, if you will. I don't know if the solution you know, is, is, is personal. I don't know if she wants, uh, you know, Trudeau to admit wrongdoing. Right. Maybe that's what she wants. Maybe she wants him to say, look, what we did was wrong. We thought we were doing it for the right reasons, trying to protect jobs, but we realize now that that was political interference and that was putting politics over, you know, the rule of law, and we are sorry. And maybe that's what she wants. Maybe she wants what Jagmeet Singh has been talking about, which is a national inquiry, to get this all cleared out and then after that, maybe she'll feel like, you know, the phoenix has, has, has burned this up a little bit, and then that she can kind of go forward. But without a national inquiry, what we're seeing is that the, the, the Justice Committee, as it's currently structured, is dominated by liberals, and they're making decisions either about who can speak or who can't speak or when they might speak that are perhaps um, in discordance with uh, all of us finding out exactly what's happened.
0: Uh, You you brought up my next point, that being uh, the SNC-Lavalin deal. Uh, Will the new attorney general do and and give Justin Trudeau what Jody Wilson-Raybould didn't? You know, are they keeping the he said, she said of this alive to sort of distract what's going on over there?
2: I mean, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Again, you know, it, it could be the case that you know um, that that one of the reasons she's out of her position. I've always been of the mind that the Occam's razor, you know, the most likely um, explanation is often the correct one. Is that she was booted because she wouldn't play ball on this issue? Yeah. So you would you would think that um, you you would think that the new guy is willing to play ball on this issue and will play ball on this issue, but. This blew up much more than they thought, yeah. and perhaps there's some skittishness now to so after all this, still go through and give what a lot of people see as special treatment to one company, and then it's, it's, it's going to be, and, and the stories keep coming out that you know, that this is, this is negative, the OECD is critical, yeah. we now realize that it's not just bribes, it's not just bribes to a local taxi driver in Libya, or it's not even just bribes to a local official, these are bribes directly connected to the Gaddafi family. That this is some ugly stuff that this company has done, right? And so the more we learn, I think the harder it's going to be. And perhaps that you know their calculation is that you know in Quebec this is important, and in English Canada that people are angry, but they won't be angry in three or four months. So we're going to go ahead and protect SMC. But I think that they've been given some pause now. And perhaps again, this could be one of Jody Wilson-Raybould's tactics: is that maybe she's waiting to see what their move is on this issue, as I noted earlier maybe that's one of the things where she's like, well, if they ultimately stick with my decision, maybe I can stay
0: in. Right. If
2: not, maybe I have to go.
0: Hmm. So, uh, that being said, your thoughts on what happened this week with the uh, Justice Committee? Uh, uh, obviously, it was, it was supposed to go on for a couple hours. It ended up uh, stopping after 30 minutes when uh, they refused to, to, to vote on whether to bring uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould back. Instead, now have pushed that back to another meeting that was already scheduled, March 19th, which just happens to be Budget Day. And I understand that will be behind closed doors. Uh, what does that do to this whole discussion?
2: Well, I think it, 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 shows, uh, it shows that the limitations of the Justice Committee, one, it shows, I think, the need for a national inquiry, um, something, again, that, that, that Jagmeet Singh's been ca- talking about for months and months, uh, or since this scandal broke, really, um, because, again, the committee is, is limited in its ability to, 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 to not, as nonpartisanly as possible, address the issues of this scandal. And again, maybe there's nothing here, or maybe there's much less here than we thought, and Justin Trudeau could be in the clear, but we won't know because of the way the committee is structured. And I think it's also an indication that the liberals, um, whether or not they have something to hide legally, they certainly seem to think they have something to hide politically, hmm. which is why that they're, I think, reluctant to have Jody Wilson-Raybould come back, because obviously that'll draw a lot of media attention. And her first round of testimony was very compelling, and very believable, I think much more so than Michael Warnick, and a decent amount more so than than than, than uh, Jerry Butts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think by putting it on budget day, I think you're right. The, the, the intent, I think, on their side is to hope the budget drowns out this kind of, um, this, this, their, their, their decision perhaps on budget day behind closed doors, they'll decide that they don't need to call her. And that will get some coverage, but as you know, budget day is one of the biggest days of, Political coverage uh, in, in, in the in the in the yearly cycle, so maybe they're banking on that. Although, although I think you know, media, you know, although nonpartisan, the media I think doesn't like being jerked around. <laughs> I think there's a chance that that could backfire on them. As almost out of spite, they're going to get covered because of their their I, I think somewhat cynical attempt to bury it on right. the budget day. Uh,
0: do you think Canadians are more interested in the budget or what Jody, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould has to say?
2: I mean that's a tricky one. I think in general, you know, when you look at what Canadians vote on, like when you look at election to election, it's almost always, you know, jobs, the economy more generally, healthcare, you know, provincially things like education. Those are the things that matter most to people, right? Yeah. Election to election from all the political parties, really. Um, so in a sense, the budget being a big part of how those things will play out over the next year or so, so so long generally is what Canadians care about but again if it's this is a big issue it's a a, a politically sexy issue given that it's like internal intrigue and you know he said she said very interesting and again there is a chance that because of how they did it if it's perceived that they're trying to bury something on budget day. It's going to have you know, the, the Streisand effect, if you've ever heard about it, where Barbara Streisand didn't want people taking pictures of her house on the Internet. So then all <laughs> the pictures were all over the Internet because, because, you know, don't don't dare tell the Internet what to do. Right. So I think here it's it's, you know, by trying to hide it, they might be bringing more attention to it.
0: So, at the end of the day, do you think, Christo, that they will let her speak, or is that it for Jody Wilson-Raybould? And I guess if she wanted to, she could get this information out either way. As you mentioned, she could be waiting to see what's happening with the SNC-Lavalin affair, but do you think she will speak again on this?
2: I mean, at the Justice Committee, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. My inkling right now, if I had... This is my inkling, just personally, um, is that by it seems like you're saying that oh, we're going to make a decision about the ultimate fate of like what we're doing for it on budget day. It looks to me like there's a chance they might try to bury it because for instance, if they were going to bury her testimony itself, they would have the testimony on budget day But a decision about who, if she is going to or not being buried on budget day. Maybe they're trying to hope it'll be a footnote in between, you know, the, the talk about the budget and what people expect. And then, you know, the talking heads go on after the budget speech to, to kind of argue for and against it and they're hoping to be buried there. So my inkling is that maybe they're going to try not to bring her back, but but again, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And in terms of, will she speak otherwise? I mean, um, that's something that she's going to have to make a decision. She's also limited, I think, in her, uh, by be, having to be very careful about uh, how she speaks and the legality of that and the privacy concerns about that. So I think that she's going to be very careful, but obviously she's an expert. And I think that, if she doesn't get to speak to the Justice Committee within her legal means, I don't think we've heard, we've heard the last of her.
0: Isn't it up to Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, whether this goes away or not? I mean, it's really, it's in her hands, is it not?
2: I mean, to a certain degree, yeah. I mean, I think if she wants to continue to press this as an issue, I think that'll, that'll sort of bring it up. I remember that when the opposition... Uh, you know, at one of the previous but uh, justice committee meetings uh, mentioned that they would like her to come back and testify, given that we have this new information from Gerald Butts and uh, some of it conflicts with hers. And, and no one, no one is calling anyone a liar necessarily, but it's like when when information conflicts, we, we we'd like to get a little bit more to confirm. Um, the uh, Jody Wilson Rabel did indicate she would be willing to speak. And I think that perked a lot of people up, saying that not only does the opposition want her back, she seems to be willing to give another round. And she kind of explicitly said, look, I said a lot, but I didn't say everything I had to say. So I think it's clear she does have more to say. And in terms of whether the story goes on, I think it's a mixture of does she want it to go on? Um, uh, does the media continue to think that this is a story worth prioritizing? Because the media, you know, you know, not, not in any cynical way, the media helps decide what's important or not by, by, by putting things in front of Canadians. And also does... What about the legal ramifications of her speaking at certain venues? If those are very restrictive, it might give um, it might put some roadblocks in front of her. Although again, I'm not an expert on that, and I don't have the science. Right? But
4: what she can say and where she where she can and cannot say it.
0: Christo, you said earlier about the OECD weighing in on this, saying that they're monitoring what's going on. Obviously, Canada, a part of their anti-bribery convention, which is is supposed to. Uh, you know, is supposed to uh, err on the right side of, of the law in this sort of thing. Um, w- what does it say or, or how does it complicate things for the prime minister that, that now the OECD is is aware of all this, is monitoring it, the world's watching?
2: Yeah, I mean, it makes it a lot harder for a couple of reasons. One, Justin Trudeau has staked a lot of his, his cred, especially in, you know, the era of Trump on being like, you know, a, a relatively popular world leader. And I'm sure he probably still will be even after this. But it's you know, it's a world blemish. this is why the India thing was pretty hard on him for a long time as well you know the 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 India debacle and uh, that trip but i I think that's going to be a real hard time for him if there's a perception that squeaky clean Justin Trudeau's Canada isn't as squeaky or as clean as we might have thought and I think it hurts us in some of our ability to kind of speak as a moral arbiter in the world. You know that post in the, the in the New York Times about how Canada was the world's moral leader, but it's indicating that perhaps we're not as clean as we as we think we are. And, you know, even when we go and talk with China, and I don't want to, you know, make an equivalency between this and some of the things in the corruption we see in China, but it is reasonable to say that, you know, when we go to China and we talk tap them about putting corporate interests above the rule of law, Uh, and then we are clearly, I think, doing the same here, it weakens Canada's moral credibility abroad. And I think that's one of Canada's strongest resources when you think about it. We don't have a lot of military might but Canada, on a lot of people's minds, is a kind of a, a an honest broker. And this uh, puts a dent in that armor a little
0: bit. All right, last question, Christo. What will we know on March 19th? Obviously, the budget is going to come down. Uh, what will be decided in these meetings, do you think? What's going to happen? I understand this next meeting will be closed door. Will they be asked to, I'm guessing the Conservatives again, the opposition, the NDP as well, will ask uh, to have Jody Wilson-Raybould come back. Will they then vote on the 19th? Will we know then whether she's coming back or not, do you think?
2: I mean, I think in a sense, I think that'll be a kind of a a big deciding day. I'm not sure about the formalities of a committee, especially a closed-doors meeting, but I think that in a sense, one of the arguments from the liberals is that the reason we didn't necessarily call her back uh, on the special meeting that we saw earlier this week was that we have these periodic behind-closed-doors meetings where we make these decisions, and we'll make that decision then. So I think this will be an indication about what we'll see with the committee going forward. But I mean, other than that, I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily sure because I don't necessarily know the the motions that may be put forward either by the the government or the opposition. So we'll have to wait and see.
0: Christo Abas has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, Postdoctoral Fellow in History at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend.